Well, what a blessing to be able to come and share God's word with you this morning. And I appreciate Pastor Ken uh, giving me the opportunity to do this. And uh, had someone at the men's breakfast yesterday joking about uh, being introverted and extroverted. And they said, so for uh, you, Pastor Larry, it's probably nothing to get up. And he didn't know I was preaching today. Get up in front of people and uh, just speak. You know, he, he sees me do this from time to time. And I assure you, uh, it is a sobering thing to stand before people and say, this is what the Lord says. So we'll be going through several passages from God's word this morning. The men in the aisles here have Bibles. If you don't have one with you today, we'd love to give you one. Uh, just raise your hand, let them know you need one. And uh, that's yours to keep. We'd love for everybody here to have a copy of God's word of their own. Just let them know and they'll get you one. When Julie and I first came to CBC years ago, I was working for a company called Franklin Covey, and uh, they're famous for their Franklin Day Planners, and uh, back in the 80s, 90s, if you'd walked into any office, in addition to a lot of big hair, you would have seen uh, Franklin Planner on every desk in the office, and uh, just about everybody had one, and they adapted their system as time went on into the late 90s and the 2000s to work on popular electronic organizers and software like Microsoft Outlook. And uh, they continue to be a standard business tool for quite a long time. In fact, I still meet people who carry a Franklin Day Planner or something similar to that. They were also famous for their training. And uh, they had this training. One of them, you might recognize the title from a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. They had another workshop called The Ten Natural Laws of Successful Time and life management. Say that three times fast. But this was a workshop that they would use to teach people how to go through and identify in their life the values, the things that were most important to them. And then they would go through a process of laying out steps so that they could accomplish these uh, values, this mission statement that they've formed for themselves. It's really, really helpful stuff. I, I was introduced to this as a college student doing an internship at a, tur- at a church. Probably can credit that uh, along with uh, tons of God's grace to me actually finishing college. And uh, very helpful stuff. If you actually take what you learn home and then put it into practice and actually do things differently day after day because of what you learned in the class. A problem that many people experienced after attending these Franklin Covey workshops was that they would go back to their offices, they'd go back to their homes, and they would fail to change the way they did things from day to day. Their personal mission statement became nothing more than this glowing motto that they carried around on the back page of their Franklin Planner. Many companies experience the same problem. Uh, The company mission statement hangs on the wall prominently for everybody to see, It's visible in the halls and the offices. It's displayed prominently on the company's website. But it doesn't really affect the way things are done on a day-to-day basis. The effects of this inconsistency, saying certain things that are important to you, but not living like those things are important to you, the, the effects of this inconsistency collectively for a company can be devastating. And individually, it can be a serious problem. And it's demoralizing to members of a company to see something written on the wall and know that that's not really how we operate. And I think we would find the opposite is true as well. Organizations that stand out and really accomplish 
significant things know exactly why they exist, and they keep very tight alignment between their day-to-day activities and their stated mission. So think of some examples with me. I've got John is going to put some on the screen here, and there's a blank first for where the company name goes, and I'll just let you see the statement there. I'll read it to you, and then think for a minute. You'll probably know who the company is. We deliver simple, easy, and enjoyable restaurant experiences for customers and create superior value for our shareholders. You might be thinking of a couple different restaurants, but McDonald's. Nice and simple, it's what they do. Here's another food service. We're devoted to seeking out the very best ingredients we can, we can. Raised with respect for animals, farmers, and the environment, our mission is to ensure that better food is accessible to everyone. Chipotle. All right, yeah, Chipotle. How about this one? This one surprised me. I actually looked up their stock prices because I thought, really, are they really, <laughs> are they really a big deal? Cause I, you know, I don't go into a store and shop a whole lot. Uh, but their mission statement actually takes that into account. It says, fashion changes, shopping changes, our commitment to happy customers doesn't. Nordstrom. And, uh, if it matters to you, their stock price went from 61 cents back in 80s to, uh, it, significantly rose every decade. I looked at it up to $40.11 now. I mean, they're not going to take down the stock market, but they're growing in value. They've actually had a dip recently, but it looks like they're adapting to the way shopping has changed, and they say that in their mission statement. How about this one? To be Earth's most customer-centric company where people can find and discover anything they want to buy online. Amazon.com, right. How about this one? Our mission statement is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. The Google, that's right. So you recognize these. Why do you recognize these? Especially the ones at the end, they became more obvious. You recognize these because these companies have actually uh, taken steps and they do things regularly so that they've actually accomplished the thing that they've got plastered up on the wall. All of these companies have set themselves apart in their area of business. And they managed to keep large numbers of people working together, moving in the same direction. That's no small thing. The direction of their mission. And as a result, they're well-known enough that you were probably able to guess who they were as I read their mission statement. And I want to challenge us today, I want to challenge you today to consider the mission of Community Bible Church and what is necessary for us to move together to accomplish our mission On our website, our mission reads, the mission of Community Bible Church is to help people learn about God, love him and others, and live for his purpose. And here's what I want to ask you. Will we be content to let our mission statement there written on our website be there for all to see but not really affect the way we live from day to day? Or will we take it up and allow it to shape the way that we think, and to set our direction. We've got inserted in your program a a, uh, outline. If you'd like to take that out and follow along, and uh, forgive the the triteness of the uh, title, but we'll be taking a look at, at the idea of more than a motto. And you see the subtitle there, Three Steps to Success in Our Mission. And uh, kind of a play on words there, but I tried to make it simple for us to remember. And I phrased them... Uh, using this phrase step, and the first of these steps is for us to step back and recalibrate how we think. 
step back and recalibrate how we think. You know, the Bible frequently describes the close relationship between how we think, how we think, and how we live day to day. As you page through your New Testament, you read about the change that faith in Christ brings in the life of a believer. I remember Pastor Ken teaching a series in his Discovering God class through the book of James, and he called that series The Behavior of Belief. And we learned that when we believe what God says, it affects the way we live. We read things like in Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So God's word says that a key component to not getting pressed into the mold of our culture, the culture around us, is by the transforming power of a renewed mind. And this theme is repeated again and again throughout the, the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we read there, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Colossians chapter 3. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is describing the focus of our attention, our inner person, our heart, to set our heart on things above where Christ is. A little bit later in this same chapter, do not lie to one another, each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And then finally, Peter says to us in verse 13, beginning in verse 13 of his letter, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. You see the connection there, the way we think and the way we live. And, and the way we think significantly uh, impacts the way we live. And so God's word addresses that. When God saves a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, he begins to change that person from the inside out. God says he wants us to be different, and he's making us different than we were, and that change has a lot to do with the way we think. So we need to step back and recalibrate how we think. Now, the next three points on your outline there kind of, kind of telescope out of one another. When you understand how, uh, when you understand and recalibrate your thinking about the first, it will have a significant impact about the second and so on. So we'll, we'll take a look at these three points that flow out of one another. As we take the direction from our mission statement that I cited earlier that we are to learn about God, our thinking about uh, these things starts with recalibrating our thinking about God. We must recalibrate our thinking about God. And I've got it fully written out there in your outline. It just says about God. I want to make it simple and easy to remember. 
So we need to recalibrate our thinking about God. You know, our problem is, for most of us, is not that we think God unimportant, right? I mean, you're here at church on Sunday morning. You got up early and came to the first service. You know God is important. Uh, Especially when we have children. Any of us who have children, uh, we recognize that we need God. You know that helpless feeling when you bring that baby home from the hospital? You recognize that you need guidance. And so we give God a box. You know what I'm talking about? Our our boxes in our life. We've got the various boxes. You have your work box, and then you have your family box. You have your friend's box. You've got the political box. And then there's God's box. And we know God is important, so we make sure we give him a box. We include him because we know we need him. Listen to what the Bible says about who God is, and then let's think about that again. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read about Jesus, God the Son. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. In him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It all comes from him. It's all for him. Next verse, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's holding it all together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Think about who that's describing. Our God does not fit in our box. We fail to recognize that God is not just important. He is the most important. He is the source of it all. He's the reason for it all. He holds it all together. And we fail to recognize that God's not just important to our life. God is our life. I mean that literally. This is what the Bible says. In that same chapter earlier, it says, Since then you've been raised with Christ, Set your heart on things above where Christ is. We read this earlier. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Next verse, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. We make this critical error when we think about God. That we think that He's important to our life, and we forget that God is our life. He's the source of it. He's the redeemer of it. And when we make this error in how we think about God, it affects how we think about everything else. It affects how you think about your family. It affects how you think about your job. It affects how you think about your schedule and your time. It affects how you think about church. It affects how you think about everything else. We looked at some verses in 2 Corinthians 5 earlier, verses 15 through 17. I want to look at that again, and I want to reread it to you, but start one verse earlier. Starting in verse 14 there, we read, For Christ's love compels us, because we were convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, We all, because we are sinners, we're dead men walking. 
We are people who deserve God's condemnation. We don't have life in ourselves. We forfeited it by our sin. But God has offered us life in Christ, and he is our life. Before you came to Christ, you were spiritually dead. And when he saved you, he gave you life. Therefore, he doesn't just deserve to be a part of our lives, not even just a prominent part of our lives. He is our life. So then having readjusted our thinking about God, if we're going to make it our mission to learn about God, we readjust our thinking about God, that he's not just important enough to give a part of our life. He is our life. We then have to recalibrate our thinking about ourselves. Let her be there ourselves. We must recalibrate our thinking about ourselves. It's the same basic problem that Adam had in the garden. He thought he would try to set out on his own and live independently of God. And we need to recognize our utter dependence on God. We think of ourselves as independent. We think of ourselves as being able to go along and do our thing. But we need to recognize that we are utterly dependent on God, who is our life. If it's true that God is our life, then we're not independent. When you think of great figures from the Bible, uh, people who stand out as significant, no doubt King David's probably one of them. He's probably near the top of the list, in fact. On a human level, that seems like it would be something to be really proud of. Think about that. You know, you've got this book for thousands of years that has been a bestseller, and you are a key character. But one of the significant things for which David is remembered after uh, slaying the giant Goliath, of course, is that he was one of Israel's most prominent songwriters. The book in the Old Testament called Psalms is full of songs, and many of them were written by this man, David. Here's a portion of one of those songs. Listen as I read this. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. So this man, David, who slew a giant when he was just a young man, while all of the army of Israel stood by, rattling in their armor because they were afraid. This man writes that the key principle in his life is not that he was independent, that he didn't go along with the crowd. He was able to go and do his own thing. That's not what he says. But rather, his key principle was dependence on God. Just read through the passage where he uh, has that uh, interaction with Goliath, where he has that battle with Goliath. And just a surface reading, uh, reading reveals David's dependence on God. Throughout the passage, he asked why no one's willing to do anything about this man, Goliath, who's profaning the name of their God. And uh, he's focused, his language is focused on the affront to God that's being permitted and the fear and self-preservation that's keeping everybody from doing anything about it. And in the end, he recalls how his past dependence on God gives him confidence to trust in God for this endeavor. He gets an audience before uh, the then King Saul. And here's how he makes his case that he should be allowed to fight the giant as Israel's representative. He says, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. 
The Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David recognized that the things that he had done to that point even, pretty amazing things actually, were because he depended on God. If David had a view of himself as independent, he would not have been able to accomplish the kind of things you read about him accomplishing. In fact, I'd argue that David did some of, uh, did allow himself to, to live independently uh, at times. In fact, uh, in, the, in the Bible, we read about him slipping into a mindset of independence that saw himself as being qualified to call the shots and do things his own way. And this led to one of the darkest times in his life. He writes about this in another one of his songs when he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For all day and night, your hand was heavy on me and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He talks about what it did to him when he decided to do his own thing and live independently of God. It almost destroyed him. But then when he returned to utter dependence on God, this is what he says. Then I acknowledged my sin, my sin to you. And I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So how do you think about yourself? As independent or as dependent on God? I mean, honestly, do you really think about it much? Does the fact that God is your life factor prominently into your decision-making? You know, the obvious application here is that we shouldn't run off and do things on our own, independent things, uh, for reasons that don't align with the mission God's given us. And that's, that's true. I think we all recognize that. But it's just as important that we realize that living as dependent on God should make us willing to do things we might otherwise be afraid to do if we were only relying on ourselves like standing up in front of a big crowd and preaching, for example. Uh, think of all the things that uh, the many people who serve around here week in and week out do so that we can have services on a Sunday and child care and people teaching the children, people greeting at the doors and standing at the welcome desk and working in the resource center and uh, all the different things, things you don't even see that need to get done so that ministry happens and that the mission at CBC is carried out. And there are people, tons of people doing this. They're recognizing that, yeah, that's true. They, they feel that they're not sufficient for it. And you know what? They're right. None of us is. But we're not independent. We're dependent on God. And so as we recalibrate our thinking about ourselves, we need to look at ourselves as dependent on God rather than independent. We also need to realize that we're not the central character in the story. We tend to do that. We see ourselves as the central character. But as we read through the Bible, key figures in the storyline change. I mean, it's just a revolving door of main main characters in each of these stories because they're not really the main character. The Lord is the central figure. Peter, one of the authors in the New Testament, quotes Isaiah 40 when he says this, All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So Peter recognizes that kingdoms come, kingdoms go, kings rise up, kings fall. Teachers uh, come onto the scene, they pass off the scene. 
Further down in that passage that Peter's quoting in Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to read a lengthy passage to you, but stick with me and, and pay attention to the picture it's drawing for us here. It says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. There's all of us down here. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you get the picture? It's back there with our recalibrating our thinking about God. When we do that, it helps us recognize that we are not the main character. As those great theologians, Pastor Ken, this is for you, hat tip here. As those great theologians, Kansas, said, all we are is dust in the wind. We're here, and then we're gone. James in the New Testament talks about that. You know, I was before I read that quote, I was, <laughs> this is kind of morbid, I told my wife this yesterday, I was laying in bed unable to sleep the other night, and I don't remember what made me think of it, but I was thinking about birthdays. And uh, I don't know if you've ever done this, probably none of you are as weird as me to do this, um, but I got my calculator out of my phone, and I started calculating how many days are in a decade. And, uh, you know, I should have wrote it down. It would be a great, better illustration if I wrote it down. But suffice it to say, um, I think it was like 7,000 or something like that, days in a decade. And uh, then I started calculating how old I am. I'm 48. Actually, I'll be 48 in May. And then I thought, all right, so let's say I live to be 80. And I think that was something like 29,000 or 27,000 days. And then I calculated with my current age how many days have I lived already. It was like 23,000 days or something like that. No, that's wrong. Uh, it was like 17,000 days. I should have wrote the numbers down. It would have been a way better, better illustration. But the point being, it was very sobering to see that I've lived more days than if I lived to be 80. I've lived more days than I will live uh, from here on out. And uh, that, was a, that was a reminder of this. I am not the main character. You know, I live my life so many, so many days I get caught up in living my life like I'm the main character. And I'm not. It's what causes me to worry a lot of the times. Uh, you know, I worry, you worry about your children. And it's because you think that what's going to happen to them if something happens to you? You know, the Lord's going to keep taking care of them just like he is right now while you're here. And uh, we are not the main characters. We're just passing through playing our part in the scene of what God is doing. James in the New Testament says this. He says, why do you, uh, why you do not, let me start that over, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. God is the main character. And remember, as we saw earlier, that the Bible says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven 
and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, they've all been created through him and for him. So we recalibrate our thinking about God. We get a better perspective so that we can recalibrate our thinking about ourselves. And this, in turn, helps us to recalibrate our thinking about our stewardship, letter C, about our stewardship. The idea of stewardship can be a foreign one to us. We don't, we don't use that word a lot. We don't talk about that in our day-to-day conversation. Um, if you do, you probably have an unusual vocabulary. We don't use the word stewardship a lot in our day. But perhaps you've used it in, in relation to finances. Sometimes you hear this in the context of financial stewardship, to refer to a business uh, of managing someone else's money. So if you have investments, chances are you've hired somebody as a financial steward of those investments. So let's say you go and you have a periodic meeting with your financial steward, and uh, you go into their office and you meet with them. They provide a report to you of how they've been managing your money. And so they slide across the desk to you one of those nice picture books. You know the nice ones, like if you order, you send your photos from your phone into Apple.com or Walgreens. or Actually, does Walgreens have a nice one? I don't know if there's a nice one. But you get one of those nice photo books with a linen cover note, you know, and he pushes it across the desk to you, and you open it up, you start flipping through that, and uh, as you do, he's describing to you his summer home in Florida that you see the pictures of right there. And uh, it is beautiful on that picturesque stretch of beach. And then uh, the next pictures there are of the cruise that he took around uh, Europe. And he's telling you the names of all the interesting people that he met. And uh, it seems like it was a great adventure. And uh, finally, he, he gets to um, this blowout Super Bowl party. You wondered what those pictures were of, but he, he got a suite for him and 40 of his closest friends. And uh, they celebrated the Super Bowl in style. It was a great night. And you sit there in that meeting, and uh, are you happy with hearing the report of his financial stewardship? I don't think so. This guy stinks, right? But is it because those are stupid things to buy? Well, maybe. Maybe you could argue, okay, that's too la- that's too lush of a lifestyle. He shouldn't be spending that much money. But switch those things out. You know, change, change them. Instead of a vacation home, a European cruise, and a lavish Super Bowl party, let's imagine that uh, he's showing you pictures of the, his modest downriver home, a practical used car, and a birthday party for his little girl. Does that change things? It does not change things. Why? Because the details of what specific purchases, what specific personal purchases he made with your money don't really matter to you. What matters to you is that he made all these personal purchases with your money and you trusted him to manage the money for you, for your interests. That's the idea of stewardship. A steward is someone who takes care of something that belongs to somebody else. The Bible teaches us that everything is God's and we are his stewards. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This this applies to our material resources that God entrusts to us. You know, the early church modeled this for us. What does it look like to look at our material resources as a stewardship issue, not an ownership issue? It looks like this. 
1 Corinthians chapter 16, On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. They had ministry objectives that they were trying to accomplish together, and they're laid out in that chapter. And they recognized this as a priority because these were things that that were pleasing to God, things that were a part of the mission God had given them. And they recognized that all they had was the Lord's, and so they acted as good stewards by pooling the resources God had entrusted to them to accomplish the mission God had given them. So this applies to the material resources that God entrusts to us. This also applies to the abilities God has given us in service of the mission. We see this in the Bible's warning not to be proud of the ways that God gifts us to serve. The Bible says this, For who makes you to differ from someone else? What do you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So God has gifted all of us to serve. Do you realize that God has gifted you to take part in what's happening here at CBC as we carry out the mission God's given us together? He's gifted all of us to serve. And in this passage, he's saying, don't be proud of how you've been gifted because it's from God. And he's reminding us to be humble about it. But the point here is that it is a gift from God, that we are a steward of that ability. So those abilities that you have, they're not yours to be hoarded. They're not yours to be used for personal gain and prominence. They're to be used in service for the mission God's given us. Elsewhere, we're told to make sure that we don't hoard these gifts. First Peter 4.10 tells us, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So you see the, the criterion there as well of what it means to be successful as a steward. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. It doesn't mean uh, we have a certain skill level or aptitude. It doesn't mean you have to meet X qualification. It means that you have to take what God's entrusted to you and just be faithful with it. And that's a, that's a great comfort to know that it is in God's hands. He gave you the gift that he wants you to have and to the, to the aptitude he wants you to have it. And we, you know, we cultivate the gifts God gives us. We don't want to neglect those gifts. But God gives them and then we use them humbly knowing that they're his. And uh, faithfulness is the key to being a successful steward. Faithfulness to what, again? To use what he's given us, what he's entrusted to us, for his interests, not our own. And this applies as well, as we saw earlier, to how we generally choose our direction in life. James told us, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go and do this or that to that city, spread, uh, spend a year here, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what to, will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And it's not just a phrase you tack on when you say things. That, that helps us to keep mindful of it. But it's the way you live is what he's saying here. He's saying, before you decide to go do this or that or the other thing, we say, is this the Lord's will? Is this a good way to use what God's given me? And so we calculate and we plan based on the mission God's given us. And then we talk about life that way. So, um, a way that I've summed this up, you know, teaching teenagers is, is great. For years I've had the opportunity to teach teenagers. And it's great because 
Uh, it motivates you to try and put things in as much of a nutshell as you can because you don't really know how long they're going to listen to you. Um, and uh, those of us who don't have uh, the most captivating voices and uh, uh, interesting style of speaking, even more so, it's important. So over the years, I've tried to capsulize this in, in two simple principles uh, for the teenagers, and that is we tend to see the resources that we have as our toy box. We see our resources as our toy box, but that's not what God wants us to see them as. He wants us to realize that he's entrusted us with resources as a toolbox. So what we have, our material resources, our abilities, our time, our energy, it's not ours to play with. It's to use in the work God's given us to do. So the first point is we step back and we recalibrate how we think about God, ourselves, and our stewardship. But secondly, step aside and make love our priority. Step aside and make love our priority. See how this this flows right out of this, and it goes right with the second part of our mission statement about loving God and loving others. Um, When we recognize who God is and who we are, it just makes sense that love would be our priority. When we recognize that we are undeserving sinners, and yet God condescended to come and at the sacrifice of Jesus, rescue us, then love is just the natural outflow of recognizing that. Jesus taught us this when he said that all that God gave as commandments can be summed up uh, in two commands. He says this in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus replied when asked what the greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So that's the first point there is love God. Love for God. And this is one of those concepts that we talk about a lot. Love for God. And it shouldn't really be that complicated. But what does love for God look like? When we love someone, we desire to know that person and to spend time with them. How do we know and spend time with God? Well, we read what he has said to us. We look at his word, the Bible, and we talk to him about what's going on in our lives. Because when we love someone, we want to express that love to them. And so we've done that this morning. We gathered here and we have expressed our love together to God when we sang our our songs this morning. You know, we sang, uh, Christ is enough. Christ is my reward and all of my devotion Now there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. Through every trial, my soul will sing, no turning back, I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need is in you. When we love God, we express that to him. And you came this morning to do that. Are you here regularly to do that? Is it a priority for you? If we love God, it will be being together with God's people, being in his word, uh, getting to know him, letting him know, uh, describing to him what's going on in our lives and how we feel about it. Not because he doesn't know already, but because we want that relationship with him, because we love him. Jesus said that when we love him, we live the way he says to live because we care about what he cares about. John fourteen fifteen says, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. You know, I've, I've mentioned the 
uh, principles, making it simple. And uh, two of the principles that I've given our teenagers over the years to follow in relationship to this idea of loving God, because it can be something we just give lip service to but don't really do anything about, is that we give God our first. We give God our first. When it comes to scheduling, resources, affections, efforts, we give God our first. And we give God our best, not the leftovers, not the things we didn't want anyways, so okay, you can have this. So stepping aside to make love our priority priority, like Jesus commanded means loving God, but it also means loving others. And the Bible tells us that we can't say that we love God and then not love others. We can't say that we love God who we don't see and then live as if we don't really love our brother that we do see. The Bible tells us that Jesus modeled this for us And he says, this is what it looks like when we prioritize love for others in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking at your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So when we love others, we consider others to be more important than ourselves. So think about it this way. Who do you talk about? when you have conversations with other people. Our natural tendency is to talk about ourselves, right? And it really is, I'm very sympathetic to this. It's very understandable because oftentimes we're nervous that maybe we don't remember details about this person that we really should remember. We we should know them better than this. And so we're embarrassed. But who are we thinking about there? Even when we do it for that uh, seemingly innocent reason, who are we worried about? We're worried about embarrassing ourselves. So we talk about ourselves instead of asking them about themselves. We protect ourselves. But if we consider them more important than ourselves, we'll want to know more about them. We'll want to talk to them about themselves. That's just a, a very simple application of that. When we, put the, uh, when we love others, we put their needs before our own. And this can mean something as simple as looking for a person that's not talking to anybody during cafe community here in a few minutes. Um, instead of just doing what's comfortable and sitting and talking with our friends that we're, that we're very comfortable with. It can be something more significant, like giving up blessings that God has entrusted to you in order to meet the needs that you know somebody has. Um, loving others means that we consider them to be more important than ourselves and that we put the needs of others before our own. These are things that are easy to talk about. These are things that we struggle, we really struggle to do because we, we spend so much of our time thinking about ourselves and living for ourselves. But we need to change that, and it changes with changing the way we, th- we uh, think about ourselves, as I said earlier. So love for God, love for others naturally leads to this last step, and that is step up and do things that further your mission. Step up and do things that further your mission, that further our mission together. When you love God, you'll care about what he cares about. And when you truly love others, you'll be moved by seeing people in need, people who need salvation, people who need uh, to grow in their walk with the Lord, people who need uh, the love and um, acceptance that we find comfort in in Christ. And you'll want to see them learn of that. You'll want to see them get that. 
In fact, you'll want to see this so much that you'll find yourself doing things that you wouldn't otherwise do, like actually talking to the person who lives next door to you or um, talking to people about things other than sports, getting to know the parents of your children's friends, going on a cross-country trip to help a church with an outreach project, um, spending Sunday evenings talking with fellow CBCers about ways to incorporate what you heard taught on the previous Sunday morning, how to apply it to your life this week. The Bible records the words of a veteran church leader to his young protege. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, For the Spirit of God... Uh, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I'm thankful that the Lord hasn't really called on you and I to suffer in the ways that we read, uh, read about in the Bible, the way believers have suffered over the years. Paul describes the things he went through as beatings in just about every town that he visited to preach. And that might one day be something that you and I have to face. And I pray that if we do one day face that, we'll be able to thank him for granting us the privilege for suffering for the sake of his name. There are many people around the world today who who do have to do that. Yet, we are afraid to suffer in little ways oftentimes. We're afraid of being thought poorly of, and so we hold back when we know we ought to say something. Or we go along with the crowd when we know that uh, saying something contrary would be honoring to God, that it might point them to this God that they need. But we hold back because we're afraid. And Paul says that the spirit God gives does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and discipline. It makes us willing to step up and do things that support what we say is important to us, what we say we're about. Allowing ourselves to be, instead of allowing ourselves to be controlled by fear and self-interest. So it would, it would make us do things that further our mission by living intentionally. When we step up and are willing to do things that further our mission, we're willing to live intentionally. And we're willing to get in the game. I remind you of what I asked at the beginning of this message when I said that our website has our mission statement and asked, are we willing to live like this is what really matters to us? Our mission statement is the mission of Community Baptist Bible Church, old version of it that I copied and pasted there, The mission of Community Bible Church is to help people learn about God, love him and others, and live for his purpose. Will we be content to let that sit there on our website but not really affect the way that we live from day to day? Or will we take it up and allow it to shape our thinking and set our direction? You see at the very bottom of the outline there, our take-home truth. Our church's mission statement should affect and reflect the way we live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, how clearly throughout it communicates who you are to us. And we stand in awe that you, the God who created the entire universe, spoke it into existence, takes thought of us, 
And that while we were content to be rebels, you sought us and you have rescued us from our own sin. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to take to heart this challenge from your word to live differently because of what you've done for us, recognizing that you are our life. It is about you. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to live differently this week because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.